to turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, this morning we're looking at the Christian walk. And uh, just to remind you where we are, if you remember uh, the first three chapters uh, basically of Paul's letter, he's talking just about the glory of the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus, and, uh, and, and He's made us a church, a family, and that we're to walk together now uh, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That's 4 verse 1. And beginning in chapter 4 then, uh, Paul's going to move on through the rest of the letter to talk about uh, how do you live as a person who's been born again by the power of God and been filled with the Holy Spirit and made part of the church of God? What does it look like in real life? And it doesn't look like living like the Gentiles. He says, verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And, uh, and, and our text this morning is going to be verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, where uh, Paul sort of summarizes what the Christian life looks like in the body, and then he's going to move on from that to continue to flesh out what does this walk of love look like. And this morning, I'm just going to read verses, uh, well, we're going to begin in verse 425, and uh, read through 5, verse 2. So let's begin 425, and chapter 5, 1 and 2 will be our text. This is God's Word. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's ask for his blessing. Oh Lord, as we come to your word this morning, thank you that you promised to speak to us through your word and by your spirit. And we, uh, Lord, anticipate uh, you addressing each of us where we live and revealing uh, the truth of who you are and what you have accomplished for us and what you've called us to. And uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that your word this morning would have a transformative effect in our life uh, to the glory of your name as you set us free from sin and pride and, and fear and uh, Lord, set us free to love in profound and astonishing ways. And we'll give you the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin uh, this morning by talking about culture. Uh, every human society, of course, has its culture. Uh, nations have their culture. If you've traveled at all uh, and you go to a different country, you realize they have a, maybe a different language, they have different foods, they have different uh, social customs. Uh, that's true for countries. It's true for families as well. Uh, as a boy, I grew up assuming that every family uh, operated just like my family uh, operated. And, and I remember uh, going to a friend's house after school, and I was very surprised. The thing that sticks out to me was that they served tacos for supper. I did not know what a taco was. <clears throat> I was 
I was quite certain it wasn't supper because there were no fried chicken or roast beef or mashed potatoes anywhere inside. I thought maybe it's just a little snack they have before we get to the real thing. <clears throat> Um, they also talk differently. Uh, the, the, I remember the, listening to the way their, their kids talked to their mom and dad, and I thought, you know, if I tried that at home, uh, it, would not, it would not go well. There was just a freeness there that we didn't have. Different family, uh, different culture. Well, there's also such a thing as religious culture. Uh, for instance, there's a, a rural Georgia Baptist church culture. Uh, and there is a West Michigan Dutch Reformed Church culture. And for those of us who've been born and raised here, our uh, West Michigan Dutch Reformed culture feels just normal and natural. Uh, however, people who travel to Grand Rapids or West Michigan from other parts of the country and grew up in different church cultures, uh, they see the, the distinctiveness of our culture much more clearly, and they see both its strengths and its weaknesses. Dutch Reformed uh, Christians are known for uh, a sincere concern for theology. Uh, we're known for a, a, co a commitment to institutions like a Christian edu uh, education. Uh, we're known for strong and often large families. Uh, we're known for hard work and plain speaking. Uh, we're known for apple pies and ham buns and black licorice and banquet. <clears throat> we are not known for humility and love. We have a reputation for cliquishness, for gossip, for church fights. We have a reputation for voicing our opinions, often loudly and sometimes angrily. We don't have a reputation for patience, uh, for listening to those who disagree with us, or gently forbearing uh, with those who sin against us. When outsiders come to Grand Rapids and observe our church culture, they don't tend to say, See how they love one another. And yet that is precisely what ought to define the culture of the church. In fact, it's not a stretch to say it's the chief determining factor of a true Christian church, uh, of people who follow Jesus. Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this all people will know you are my disciples. There's disciples of lots of other guys, but by this people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. And so love for one another and towards one another is a primary and necessary evidence of true followers of Jesus Christ. A genuine profession of faith in Christ will be evidenced by this. And, uh, and Paul is just pressing then home what Jesus spoke of in there in John chapter 11 um, when Paul calls us to walk in love. Uh, that's just part of uh, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. It's what it means to follow Jesus. And Paul, as we just noted in, in, in chapter 4, has given us very specific applications of what that would look like. It's putting away falsehood and, and speaking the truth in love and putting away stealing so that we work, so we have something to give, a generous giving and generous living. Um, it's putting away malice and bitterness and wrath and anger so that we can be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving one another. And here's the capstone of it. This is just a summary statement uh, of what a God-honoring Christian life looks like, walk in love. Now, there are two notes um, that I want to just highlight before we get into the text itself. The, the first note is I just want to acknowledge how hard and painful this might be for some of you to hear this morning. Uh, you have people in your life who've wounded you, maybe wounded you deeply, and maybe continue to do so. 
And it's difficult for you to know what does it mean even to love this person? What does love look like in this context? A book that I've recommended to people in the past is Dan Allender's book, A Bold Love. Um, I, I just found it to be helpful. What does love look like in hard circumstances? If, I, if, if that's true of you this morning and, and you sense in your heart you don't even really want to love people who wound you, I would just beg you this morning not to just close your mind and harden your heart, but I would invite you to let the Lord take you by the hand and lead you into a greater and deeper understanding of what this truth really is and the power behind it. Because you see, this is not just a command to do something more or to do something better. It might easily sound like that, but Paul is not just laying down a rule. He's not laying down a law. What Paul is doing is explaining a life that flows naturally and necessarily from certain facts, things that are true. And so the, the way we're going to proceed this morning is, is to look at those facts and, and really strive to understand them and to understand how do those facts compel a life of astonishing generosity and love. So let's look at the first fact where Paul says, be imitators of God. If you notice your text, it's where he begins. Therefore, as he summarizes chapter 4, be imitators of God. It's obvious that you cannot imitate someone unless you carefully observe them, unless you know uh, them intimately. If you think about uh, how a little boy imitates his father, Maybe he walks like his father and talks like his father and he, and he plays with toys that uh, mimic what his father does for work. Uh, how is he able to do those things? Well, the, one answer is he, he's able to do those things because he watches, he listens, he's paying attention. His father looms large on the horizon of his little life. His eyes are on dad and, and he knows his father well and therefore just sort of naturally imitates that. Well, it's exactly the same when it comes to living the life as a Christian. The first step to imitating God is to get your eyes fixed on God. The reality of God has to loom large on the horizon of your life. We need to know Him in truth and intimately. Any Christian who tries to obey the command to love without beginning with God without beginning with noticing God and focusing on God, it's just going to find themselves profoundly uh, overwhelmed and, and, and defeated. You, you won't be able to do it. You won't be able to imitate God because God isn't the thing that's, that's forefront in your mind. And so we need to fix our mind on the fact of God, and not just God in general, but, but specifically the love of God. So when Paul, Paul says imitate God and, and walk in love, uh, he clearly wants us to think about specifically then the love of God. I love what uh, John the Apostle writes in 1 John four sixteen. Listen to what he says. We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. Let me just read that again. We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. Not just come to know and believe God. We've come to know and believe the love of God. 
for us. Not the love of God in a general sense, but the love of God for me. That's what we've come to know. That's what we've come to believe. That's, that's an essential confession of a Christian. It's the foundational knowledge, you see, upon which a life of love is built. If you don't have that foundation, there's no possible way to build a life of Christian love. This is necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Well, how do you come to that knowledge? Because that's a battle for, for us. How do we come to that experiential knowing and believing the love God has for me, for us? Well, let me list two things the Bible uh, would point us to. First, by an observation and grasp of gospel facts. So how has God made known His love to us? How has God revealed it, manifested it, expressed it? Well, the, the Bible's very clear on that, isn't it? Romans 5, verse 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. These are just the the facts of the gospel, right? It is, it is an indisputable fact that the world of men is a world of sinful men. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it's an indisputable historical fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, came into this world because God so loved the world, He gave His own Son. That's not a theory. It's not a religious idea. It is a fact of history, that God has displayed His love for us in sending His very own Son, Jesus Christ, to bear our guilt and die on a Roman cross, turning aside the wrath of God, robing us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, reconciling us to the Father, making us citizens of an eternal kingdom. That again is a gospel fact. This is love, John will say, not that we loved God, but that He loved us us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sin. And, and, and so the, the first way to, to understand and experience the love of God is to face the truth of the gospel, to face the objective fact of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. But there's a second necessary uh, thing that has to happen, and that is we come to know the love of God by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, the facts by themselves will never convince you or never give you an experiential knowledge of the love of God to you. There are many people in the world today, many people in the church today, who could tell you very easily the facts of the gospel and yet do not have an experience of the love of God for them in Jesus in a transformative way. Why not? Well, I don't know all the reasons why not, but what I do know is that the Spirit of God is a necessary agent of an experiential knowledge that actually transforms our life and empowers our love. So Paul says in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Which is, of course, why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that God would strengthen the believers with power 
through His Spirit in their inner being so that they would have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ, to know the love that surpasses knowledge. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it, there's no other way to get there except by the Holy Spirit. The facts of the gospel by themselves will never give you a transformative experience of the love of God. And there are many frustrated, defeated, guilt-ridden Christians who are trying then to do what's not possible to do. Trying to obey the command to walk in love without looking to and leaning on, asking for the Holy Spirit for that transformative experience of the love of God. And I'm not talking about just a single you know, moment where the lights uh, go on and, 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 and it's something you can point to for the rest of your life, but the Spirit ministering to you day by day. This is true. This is true. God loves you in Jesus Christ. And we can ask for it, right? Jesus says, "If you being evil, you know, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. Well, well, how much more your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him for it? And so ask for it. Lord, say, Holy Spirit, pour out this love into my heart. The Spirit has been given precisely so that we might experience and know in a, in a true way the love of God to us in Jesus Christ so that our life might be rooted and grounded in love. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. And that is how we become imitators of God and walk in love. We face the facts of God's love to us as manifested in Jesus Christ, and then by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we experience the truth of that love, and we begin to walk in a new way. And my question to you this morning is is simply, has that happened to you? Can you say that I've come to know and believe God's love for me. Don't settle for a Christianity that doesn't have that in the middle of it, that doesn't have that woven through all the fabric of it. Then ask for it, pray for it, seek it. So that you can say, I, yes, I have come to know, and and I know in part, and and I see dimly right through a glass darkly, but I know I believe that God has loved me in Jesus Christ. But there's more. There's a second and equally important fact that Paul wants us to know and believe. If, you, if you're looking at your text, you can see what Paul says. Look at, the, look at the words. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And so if the first pillar of a life of love is, is facing the fact of God and, and, and experience His love by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second pillar is the fact of our new status before Him because of His love. You see, God in His love for you did not give Jesus simply so that your sins could be forgiven. He did not give you Jesus simply so that you could escape hell. He didn't give you Jesus even simply so that you could go to heaven. He gave you Jesus so that he could make you his child. He loved you to that extent to make us his children, which is what John marvels uh, over in 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. He could have said we should be called Christians. We, we, We should be called the forgiven. 
Those things are wonderfully true, but, but what John marvels at is that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That's the marvel of it. You see, that's the paradise of heaven. We will not be in heaven as the angels are, simply inhabitants uh, gazing on the glory of God, as wonderful as that would be in itself. We will not be in heaven as the angels are. We will be in heaven as Jesus is, a precious part of the divine family. We are co-heirs with Christ because we are co-sons with Christ. We're children of God. Jesus calls us brothers. And we've been given the gift that belongs only to the children. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you're sons, God has given you the spirit. And so you see, the life that Paul calls us to, invites us to, is simply the life that flows from your identity in Christ as children of God. A moment ago, we asked the question, how does the little boy know how to imitate his dad? And, and the answer we gave was that, well, he's watching his dad. And that's true, but it's only part of the truth. The other part of the truth is that, uh, well, there's, a, there's the matter of genetics, the DNA that forms his body is also at work when he walks like dad and talks like dad. In some sense, he can't help it, right? It's who he is. It's his makeup. And friends, again, the very same thing is true for the believer in regards to spiritual things. The life of love is a matter of spiritual genetics. Every child of God has spiritual DNA, right? The spiritual DNA of our Father in heaven. And since our Father loves, we love. In some sense, we can't help it. It's our DNA. It's the way we're made. And this, by the way, is, is why we're so grieved when we struggle to love, right? Why does it, why does it bother you? when you realize that, that love is hard for you, that, that there's a person that, that is very difficult for you to love, why does it, call, why does it cause a turmoil in your, in your spirit and, and, and sadness when you see impatience in your life or bitterness in your life or anger in your life? Even little evidences of it. Doesn't it, just, doesn't it bug you? When you see how quickly you lose your patience with, with another driver, it's like, who made you the king of the world? Traffic doesn't have to flow around your convenience. So I, and I hope you sense that. Why is that there? Why can't you just, you know, be happy with yourself? You know, you just, you just do you. And if you're bitter, it's because you have reasons to be bitter. And if you're angry, it's because people are, are crazy. And right, there's, there's reasons. Why can't you live there? Well, the reason you can't live there is because if you're a Christian, it's contrary to your spiritual DNA. You're a child of, the, of a loving Heavenly Father. And because you're a child of the Father, your instinct and your desire is to love. You, you can't help it. John says in 1 John 5, 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And, and so if you're a Christian, you're just going to find that 
that the Spirit within you is, is giving you a desire to love and, and to grow in love. And the, 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 it's just going to be the reality that the, that the reality of God's love for you and, and your love for the Father will move you inevitably to love your brother and sister in Christ. It, it's your spiritual DNA. And, and again, I just, want, I just want to stress that. You see that Paul's not just laying down a law here. What Paul's doing is opening the door to what is ours by virtue of God's love to us in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's ministry to us and, uh, and, and who we are. We, we, shouldn't have, we don't have to convince each other to do this. This is what God is has done for us and calls us to. And, and then the final fact that Paul calls us to face is the fact of Christ and, and His love for us. So walk in love, he says, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. You see, the model and the fountain of, of a life of walking in love, of, in love is, is Jesus Himself. So the model, what does it look like? What does is, what is Christian love actually look like? Is it just being nice? No, it, 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 it looks like giving. It looks specifically like sacrificial giving, astonishing sacrificial giving. So it looks like a, a father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it, it looks like a Savior who so loved that He gave Himself up for us. That's what Paul says here. He gave Himself up for us. Paul will speak of this again later on in chapter 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? And gave Himself up for her. Gave Himself up for her. You see, Christian love is inherently and incessantly generous. That's the spirit of it. The love that the Holy Spirit pours into our heart is defined by or revealed by persistent, astonishing generosity. If you want proof that that's what the Spirit does, just look to Pentecost. So what happened when the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon the church? Uh, what, what happened to those people? Well, th they were gripped with a radical, astonishing generosity. Acts 2.44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and selling their belongings, their stuff, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. How does that happen? Well, it just happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into their heart. And this, this, this love that's defined by astonishing generosity in the people, they're not, they're not you know, twisting arms to make this happen. It's not some, some campaign where you get shamed if you don't participate. This is just the Holy Spirit of God opening doors and people walking through. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when Paul says I, to the Corinthian church, I want you to know about the amazing grace that God has poured out on the Macedonian churches. Well, what was the evidence of God's amazing grace poured out on the churches in Macedonia? The evidence was astonishing generosity. Paul says their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth 
of generosity, begging us earnestly for the favor of participating in the relief of the saints. Gentiles begging to be allowed to give to, those, to Jews, right, who, who now were brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul talks about a life of love, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a life of giving, a life of astonishing, sacrificial generosity. The grace of God to us and the, the, the love of Christ for us and the Holy Spirit within us will compel us to this life. The early church couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit was simply too mighty and the love of God was too overwhelming. The, the, the reality of Christ's love for them was, was just irresistible and it transformed their life. And so friends, you see, if, if we're going to love the way Jesus loved us, we're going we're gonna to need to give to each other the way Jesus gave to us. He set aside his riches. He set aside his heavenly prerogatives, right? His reputation, his very life in order to love us. And he did it while we were his enemies. And I have to be frank, that's, that's the hard part. That's, that's what I find most difficult. I, uh, it's easy for me to love family and friends and, uh, and to be generous with them. I like, I like being generous with my family and my friends. I like sharing my, my stuff. A life of generosity is appealing to me. I'm not very good at it. I'm not as good as I'd like to be, but it's, I want to be. Uh, it's just the people that wound me that make it, that, that's where it gets hard. Uh, that's, it's a whole different world. And you see, and the deeper the wound or the more persistent the offense, the more unjust I feel the action has been, well, the harder it gets. In fact, I'm convinced that humanly speaking, it's impossible for me to sacrificially, generously love those who do that to me. It's, it's just humanly impossible. My fear, my pride, uh, it's, it's just an obstacle that I can't break through. And I think you would say the same is true for you. And you're just stuck. Well, you see, friends, that's the wonder of the gospel. Because we don't have to be constrained by, what, by the realm of what's humanly possible. We get to live in the realm of what's divinely possible. Because you see, somehow our Father was willing and able to truly love, uh, to actually love His enemies to the extent that He was willing to send His dearly only begotten Son to die and be damned in their place. And Jesus was somehow able and willing to love those who despised Him and pour out His own precious blood for their sin. And it is that love that rescued us. And it's that love that the Spirit pours into our hearts. And it's that love that should define our life. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us when we were his enemies. And so you see, friends, uh, there's a deep truth there we've got to get our hands on. If, if, if we approach this simply as a rule, if this just becomes a law, you're never going to attain it. It's just going to beat you down. It's just going to make you feel like a failure as a Christian. 
It's, and, and, and you're just not going to be, over to be able to overcome your fear and your pride. Uh, it's, it, it will defeat you every single time. But if we would walk this path that Paul has laid down for us, if we would, if we would take hold and focus our attention on these facts that he's given to us, right? Fix our eyes on the, the, the reality of our Father in heaven who loved us in a most astonishing way. And, it, and if you've if you ask the Holy Spirit, you see, to pour out that love into your heart and, you, and you, you think about how does it happen that you have become a child of God and that Jesus loved you and gave his life for you. As, as we focus, you see, friends, on these great gospel facts, you're going to move in love. It will be a compelling power in your life. You won't be able to help it in that sense. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of Christ compels us. It constrains us, controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them, who died for their sake. Friends, this is what should distinguish the life of the church. Generous, astonishing, sacrificial, self-denying love should define the church. It should define how we talk to each other. It should define how we talk about each other. It should define how we greet each other. It should define how we look to bless needs, minister to needs, give our time, give our money, our gifts to bless each other, not because we have to, but because we can't help it. We can't help it. These are God's people. These are my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, every one of them bought by the blood of Christ. And, and those who have not yet be, come to know and experience that love of Jesus Christ, well, I'm going I'm to bless that brother or sister. I wanna, I'd like to just talk with them and, and pray with them or pray for them. Because the love of Christ can compels me. I want to share my life and share my things and, and share all that God has, has so graciously done for me and with the confidence that, that he'll use that to bless his people. And, and he'll use that to bless a whole world out there that, that, that's watching. You see, it should be our passion as it's Paul's passion and, and the Spirit's passion and Christ's passion. That this is how people would know that we're Christians. But how we love each other. In the second century, there was a man named Tertullian. He was a leader of the church, and he was uh, the church was being mocked and despised, persecuted by the world. And Tertullian wrote a letter to the heads of state to defend the church, to defend its doctrines and defend its life. And and he he says this in that letter. He said, "It is mainly the deeds of of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us." See how they love one another, they say. For they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. See how they are ready even to die for one another, they say. In other words, the world is looking in. What the world sees are people who love in an astonishing way, who sacrifice for each other even to death. That's what the, the world saw. Wouldn't it be great if that's what the world saw when they looked at Harvest Church? Or if they looked at your home, at your family, they looked at your marriage, 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what they said? See how they love each other? See how they, see how they die to themselves to serve each other? See how they give themselves away for each other? They give their time and their gifts, their preferences, their strong opinions. You see how they, they give it away? You, do you see how they love even people who wound them? Pray for those who persecute them? Friend, that's what should define the church. My question for you is, what astonishing act of generosity might Jesus be calling you to today? I wrote a letter this week to someone that um, just not been, it's a relationship that hasn't been right for a while. And um, I was wounded, and I was hurt, and I was proud. But it was hard to write this sermon and not write that letter. I'm just going to ask you this morning, now that you've heard this sermon and you've heard this truth, what might you do to actually put it into practice and to actually walk in love? Not think about love or just pray about love, but actually walk in astonishing generosity. May God grant it. Amen. Our Father in heaven, you know us and you know our, our hearts. Lord, you know the wounds that we've suffered. You know the pride um, that indwells us, the fear that grips us. And yet, Father, I thank you that uh, you lay before us facts and truths that are more than able to overcome all these things. The fact of a heavenly Father who loved us and gave his son for us, and a Holy Spirit poured out into our hearts that, the, that we might experience that love, and a Savior who gave his life for us and now invites us by the power of his resurrection life to walk in a new way. So Father, I pray that there would just be repentance in our hearts this morning for relationships we've withdrawn from, for gossip and slander that we've shared. I pray there would be, Lord, uh, repentance for our own acts of bitterness and anger and malice. And Lord, I, I pray you forgive us for our unbelief that made us think that this could never be fixed. This marriage could never be healed. This friendship could never be restored. This wound could never be healed. Jesus, I pray that that the reality of God and the love of God to us in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, would be able to make us see that all things are possible with God. And so, Father, I, I pray that this would not just be a sermon we, we note and think about maybe for a few minutes, but, Lord, that these truths would move us and compel us to love in a new way and that there would be acts of confession and kindness and generosity that could come from nothing other than God himself. That it might be evident that the Spirit has poured out the love of God into our hearts and that it's evident that we're disciples of Jesus because we love each other. And we pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's respond this morning by giving our life for Jesus and recognizing that we do that as we give it away for each other. All for Jesus, all for Jesus. invite you if the spirit has uh, just convicted you that you need to make a move and you're not quite sure how I invite you to reach out to me reach out to your elder reach out to Greg Norfleet or any of the pastors here just a godly friend uh, if you'd like to just have someone pray with you this morning um, invite you to just come and, and ask uh, I'll be up here um, and uh, we'd love to pray with you uh, so let's just take a step in faith uh, by the power of God uh, into a new life and now receive his benediction I'd like to just first read Paul's prayer, where he says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish them in every good work and deed. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.